Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. This morning, I want to take a look at faith and commandments. And as well, I want to look at traditions and customs and how they can either support or how they can work against your faith and how they can either support or work against God's commandments. So we're going to start with this week's Torah portion. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 7 and and look at a passage about Moses and Pharaoh. And the context is this. God has called Moses and told him to go to the children of Israel and to speak to them that God is going to deliver them. But the, the circumstances are not easy. Because Moses also has to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that he needs to let Israel go. And so we're picking up the Lord's instruction to Moses, Exodus chapter 7 verse 2. The Lord speaking, you are to say everything I order you. And Aaron, your brother, is to speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people of Israel leave his land. But I will make him hard-hearted, even though I will increase my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies, my people, the sons of Israel, out of the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment." Then when I stretch out my hand over Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So let's think about what's required of Moses. It's it's very straightforward here. He needs to listen to the Lord and to say to Pharaoh what the Lord tells him to say to Pharaoh. It's not Moses' responsibility to come up with the ideas, the agenda, The Lord actually says, say this. Do it very simply. And it's what the Lord commands him. And it's specifically this, let the children of Israel leave Egypt. And then the next question that we should ask about this is, how will Pharaoh respond? And the Lord says, go tell him to let my people go. Go tell him to let the children of Israel leave his land. And he will be hard-hearted. And he won't listen to you. Now think about this. Have you ever had the experience where you were in conflict with someone, you just didn't want to talk to them, you didn't want to see them? How many can relate to that? You've you've ever had that experience? How many have been on the receiving side? Someone was in conflict with you, they didn't want to talk to you either. (laughs) So you understand how this can work. Very human. And and there are some people who you could call uh, turtles because in the face of conflict, they pull in, you know, and they hide. Other people can be called porcupines. In, in the face of conflict, you know, they bristle. The quills go out. They're dangerous to get near. Moses is being told, go have some conflict with the king of your land. But don't worry. He'll be hard-hearted. He won't listen to you. A lot of us would be, you know, we'd be checking our travel itinerary. Did I get a round trip back to the desert or just a one-way ticket? What got me here? How do I get out of this? 
Notice this detail in in verses 3 and 4. Even though I will increase my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. You see, for unbelievers, signs and wonders are not always compelling. They're not always the answer. Signs and wonders are not the absolute key to evangelism for that reason. Hard-hearted people can misunderstand. They can respond wrongly, even to signs and wonders. But the Lord says in the end, he'll bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery anyway. So the Lord knows it's not going to go well at the beginning. It's not going to go well in the middle. It's not even going to go well in the end. It's only after the end that it's going to be good. And the question is, what's the end? Israel actually has to get to the other side of the sea before it's the end. And it doesn't look so good. So if God ever puts you in a condition like that, a situation like that, don't be surprised. He knows how to use even those kinds of long-lasting difficulties in order to produce extraordinary fruit and results. Now I want to back up and just look at one verse. It's in the previous chapter, Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. The Lord tells Moses to go and speak to the children of Israel and to tell them, tell them what the Lord is going to do. The Lord is going to bring them out of slavery. He's going to bring them out of Egypt. They're going to go to the promised land. They are going to inherit the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we read in verse 9, Moses reported all of this to the Israelites. Moses told the people of Israel what the Lord had said, but they did not listen to him. After that, he said, and you want me to go to Pharaoh? But pay attention to this very important detail. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and the harsh labor. Or because of their broken spirit or their crushed spirit and the harsh slavery. Because of the cruel bondage. Now this tells us something. Both the children of Israel and Pharaoh didn't listen. But it was for completely different reasons. And the Lord includes these details in order to help us understand that he can make distinctions. It's really a very nuanced psychological idea here. The Lord's saying the outward response will be identical. They all won't listen. But the inward condition is different. Pharaoh's just hard-hearted towards the Lord. But the children of Israel... They're discouraged. Their spirit's been crushed. They've they've suffered because of the harsh labor. And so it's difficult for them to believe what you tell them. It's difficult for them to accept this. And that should help us in, in how we relate to people. Because we can misjudge people. We can say, well, this outward behavior, I know exactly what it is. And it actually may not be what you think it is. So it's important to to not jump to conclusions about what's the cause of outward behavior. And to be alert. Don't just judge by outward behavior. Look at the heart and appeal to the heart. 
And that is why the Lord says the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and then everything else too. So pay attention to the heart and the scriptures are telling us that the Lord can distinguish between the internal conditions that individuals and groups of people have and he can know what they need in order to come out of a a kind of difficulty that they have. Well, the New Testament letter uh, Hebrews, or we could call it Messianic Jews, says that Moses was acting with faith when he went to Pharaoh, when he led the children of Israel out, when he refused to identify uh, as daughter of as uh, as a child of the daughter of Pharaoh, or to identify with Pharaoh's household, that he did all these things by faith, by faith Moses, by faith Moses, the scripture says. And so it's important for us to understand faith, and, and a Hebrew word for faith, emunah, or emunah, both uh, pronunciations, just say emunah with me. And there are two sides to biblical faith. The first side is trusting God. And the second side is faithfulness or action that reflects the trust that we have. This is very important. God is faithful to us, and so we respond with faithfulness to him. God is trustworthy, and we show ourselves trustworthy to him. Faith doesn't just mean giving positive mental assent to something. It doesn't just mean you think and agree. It means you put your trust in and then you act according to that trust. This kind of faith is based on the fear of the Lord, what we could call awe, A-W-E. Very special kind of fear. It's not the fear of destruction. It's, It's a holy respect. So it's based on the fear of the Lord together with love of the Lord. These two things go together. Because we trust and we love God, we follow him, we do what he commands. So Moses is being tested by the Lord. Do you have faith in me? Do you listen to me? Do you do what I tell you to do? And do you love me? Do you trust me? And are you faithful because you Fear me and you love me. You know, fear of people, fear of circumstances, fear of things not working out can get in the way of the fear of the Lord. And so what's the cure for that? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord will be the beginning of wisdom for you. It will help you make wise choices. So if you're overcome with other kinds of fear, remember that great message that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, Sound mind, self-control. In other words, the spirit that God gives us helps us be strong in love and respond uh, with sound thinking and not double-mindedness. Now, let's compare this to Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh ultimately did give in. How many plagues did it take for Pharaoh to finally and fully Uh, agree to send the children of Israel out. How many plagues? Ten plagues, right? It took ten plagues, and ultimately he gave in and he obeyed, but Pharaoh never did trust the Lord. And for sure, 
he did not love the Lord. So we, we need to notice this because just obedience based out of fear of punishment is not faith. The obedience that the Lord's looking for, the faithful obedience, is born of awe and trust and love for God. Those things all working together in a person's life. Pharaoh never had faith. Now God called the children of Israel to a life of faith. He said uh, through Moses, let my people go that they can worship me. That's a classic English translation. But the Hebrew says, let them go that they could be my slaves, not yours. Let them go that they would be my servants, not your servants, my servants. And all of us who love Bob Dylan, remember, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be Pharaoh. Or it may be the Lord. But you got to serve somebody. So the Lord said, let them go to serve me. And the children of Israel understood something. This is not get out of jail free card. This is going into a life of service to the Lord. Now, the Lord is different than Pharaoh because the Lord is only interested in the well-being of the people. Pharaoh's not. He doesn't care if people die. He doesn't care if they're destroyed. In fact, he, he does things to make life hard. But the Lord is always looking to bring good out of every situation, always looking out for our interests. Now, in Messiah, our faith combines trusting God, loving him, and being faithful to him. This is very important because it, there's, a, there's a misunderstanding that has serious theological implications for people. Some people think that faith just means nodding your head and giving like some momentary agreement. So we can ask a serious question. Does faith require more than simply raising your hand or nodding your head, or coming forward at a meeting, or saying a sinner's prayer when you're invited to not go to hell. How many people really don't want to go to hell? Everybody, right? So if you do a survey, we have two choices. You can go to heaven and you can go to hell. Which would you prefer? Everybody's in favor of, of not, you know, burning forever. Not having worms eat you, you know, and, you know. <laughs> Everybody's in favor of being resurrected to a better body than they currently have. Am I right? But that's not the question. The question is, will you put your trust in me? Will you follow me? Will you love me? That's what the Lord is asking. That's what he's looking for. So the most important questions need to be asked of us so that we can answer them. Now, let's, let's ask this question. Does faith require more than just raising your hand at a meeting when someone says, uh, if you want to accept Jesus and not go to hell, raise your hand? Is there more to the life of faith than that? And is it possible for someone to say, well, I'm going forward, and they have no intention, nor do they ever live for the Lord? Is more required of them? Yeah. So we can, we can answer this question simply. Faith does require more than just a momentary response. 
It does. Faith may be initially expressed these ways, but biblical faith is deeper, it's longer lasting, it's much more serious. God looks at both our actions and our hearts. That's what we see from his ability to distinguish between the the children of Israel who were crushed in their spirits and didn't listen versus Pharaoh who is hard-hearted to the Lord and didn't listen. And this is one of the main teachings of Yeshua and his disciples. Yeshua told us that um, it's important to not only hear his words but put them into practice. He said that the one who hears and puts his teachings into practice is like a wise person who builds on stone rather than sand. And when the storm comes and beats against that house, the house remains standing. But the key is, the wise one is the one who hears and puts the teaching into practice. This is why the apostles would say, don't be just hearers only, but doers also, hearers and doers. Unite your actions and your faith. It's why Yaakov, James said that I will show you my faith by the things that I do. It's not that they were confused and thought that if they did this good deed that they would earn a place in heaven. They understood how atonement was uh, made for them. It was through the sacrifice of Yeshua. But they also understood that the life that we live needs to be for the Lord. So we can ask another question. Does new covenant faith include any commandments whatsoever? And I want to give a really simple answer to that. Yes, it does. And let's just go to the source. We'll look at Yeshua's answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? If there are no commandments, Yeshua would be dismissive of the question. And he would explain there are no, you know, why are you asking about commandments? Commandments, commandments. All this stuff, you know, it's like you are so lost in the past. No, he answers the question. In fact, he even says, I give you a new commandment. He could have said, hey, I got a new idea. Or here's a suggestion that may be useful for some of you. But that's not what he said. A new commandment. So let's just say commandment. Yeshua answers concretely what is the greatest commandment by reciting the Shema and the Vehafta. And in doing so, he's saying that we need to listen and not just audibly listen, but heed, put into action the things that we hear from the Lord. And then the second part of it, the Vehafta, is a fascinating commandment. It's a commandment to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, to love him with everything you've got. And what's so fascinating is it goes against human thinking that you can command someone to love. Have you ever tried to command your kids just to be nice to each other? It's not always easy. Have you ever tried to, uh, to get a defiant child to apologize while they're holding on to their defiance? <laughs> you know, and uh, sometimes they may go through the motions, they may say the words, and then you realize this didn't help at all. 
Because real apology needs to come from the heart. But the Lord says it's a commandment. Yeshua says it's a commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love me, is what he's saying. Here's my number one commandment, Yeshua says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's it. Number one, love. And then he says, I'll give you two for one. Vehafta l'recha kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself. And then, you know, later on people are saying, well, who's a neighbor? And Yeshua could have made it easy, but he made it hard. He told a story about a Samaritan who acted in a neighborly way. And the Samaritans, you know, they were replacement theology. They were uh, displacement supersessionists. They thought that their scriptures were superior to the Jewish scriptures. Their ways were superior and so forth. And Yeshua makes the Samaritan into the hero. And he's the one who acts neighborly, where the Levite and the, the, the Kohen, the, you know, my guys, they're not doing so good. They're busy getting ready to go to conferences or something. I don't know. So we understand something. The term for neighbor can actually be far-reaching. It's not just your next-door neighbor. It's not the, just the person down the street. In fact, it can be enlarged to include even those who are really different, even strangers, even enemies. It's quite challenging, I think, to embrace that scope. It's easier, Yeshua said, to love your friends. It's, it's as if he said, anybody can do that. Everybody does that. Everybody loves their friends. And then he says, love your enemies. But imagine how hard it is to love God's way. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved, he so loved the world. Can you imagine? It's not just loving your friends. It's not just loving the people who think like you and agree with you or who look like you or are like you. It's not just loving your family. Loving not just your enemies, but God loves the whole world. That's why he gave Yeshua. That kind of love is extraordinary. And remember that the New Testament affirms that when we were enemies of God, Yeshua died for us. He didn't wait until we became his friends to make a decision, will I die or not? But knowing Each of us would be his enemy. He died for us in advance so that at that moment when we were ready and needed an atoning sacrifice, it had already been paid. That is a super high standard, is it not? Now, as Messianic Jews, as Messianic believers, as disciples of Yeshua, we consider Yeshua our chief rabbi. He's top dog. He is the rabbi of rabbis. He is the ultimate authority for us. He's not just Yeshua from the past, but he is currently the authority for us. And sometimes Yeshua's teachings are different from traditional teachings. Those teachings could be traditional Jewish teachings. Those teachings could be traditional Christian teachings. And it's very important that we give his teachings the honor and the authority that they deserve. And for some people in the Messianic movement, it's really easy to to see when Yeshua's teaching goes against some Christian traditions. It's like, yeah, those bad traditions. 
But what about when his teaching goes against some Jewish traditions? Then what? Because not every Jewish tradition is a good tradition. Some are bad. Some are neutral. They could go either way, depending on what's going on with the individual. Now, I believe if we are going to claim to be messianic, we have to give Yeshua the authority that he deserves as rabbi. And remember, I brought this up last week, be careful what you learn from those who you don't want to become like. If you want to be a disciple of Yeshua, be very careful about what you learn from those who reject Yeshua. The model you choose and the teacher, the congregation, the community of faith, the sources, the texts that you use, the traditions and customs you follow, the people you fellowship closely with, these are all very important. Now I want to look at a passage that shows an example of Yeshua's teaching and practice that did not follow widely accepted Jewish traditions. It had to do with washing hands before you ate. And there were lots of rules about it. And for, for many of the most fastidious Jews, if you didn't wash your hands according to the rules, then it's like you hadn't washed your hands. And if you hadn't washed your hands, you couldn't eat. The food wasn't clean. It wasn't, it wasn't clean before God. And if you ate, it was a dishonor to God. But Yeshua didn't follow those rules. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. This is the shortest passage that covers this. Matthew 15, and I think Mark also has uh, other details that are interesting. Matthew 15 in particular, because Yeshua comments that it's it's not what goes into a person that's defiling, because that will pass through their body, but rather it's what comes out of their heart that is defiling. So Luke chapter 11, verse 37, Yeshua was speaking, and a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in, and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was astonished. He was shocked to see that Yeshua didn't first wash his hands before the meal. So that's the scene. Now, they're having fellowship. This Pharisee is interested enough in Yeshua, and Yeshua in him, that they're going to have a meal together. They're going to have some fellowship together. The Pharisee is following the rules that are very fastidious as they understand them. He washes his hands in anticipation of eating, and Yeshua doesn't. The Pharisee's shocked. And Yeshua makes a comment. It's quite a challenging comment. He says, now then, verse 39, now then, says the Lord, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside... You're full of greed and wickedness. Now, he's not talking about dishwashing techniques. He's mixing his metaphors. And he's saying, the, the washing that you're doing is really like just washing the outside of a dish. But the inside goes unexamined. And it can be full of greed and wickedness. You see, Yeshua is pinpointing something that when people focus on external behaviors, they may miss the most important things about what's going on in the inside. Now let's look at another example. And this one could be a bit difficult for some. 
What about tefillin? Or phylacteries, as they were called in Greek. Now, Yeshua has no teaching that compares to either Talmudic, Kabbalistic, or later rabbinic teaching about the importance of the technical details of tefillin. How they're to be made, what they're to be made of, what scriptures are inside, the proper way to lay tefillin or to wrap tefillin. Yeshua has no teaching about that. He doesn't affirm the Talmudic or the Kabbalistic-based rules and regulations about them. He simply ignores those rules. Yeshua doesn't say there's any particular spiritual power in putting them on. There is no teaching from Yeshua that says, now if you lay tefillin in this way, you will get closer to God and be more spiritual. Here's how it can work for you. He doesn't talk about any of those things. Now, it's very different than Hasidic and Orthodox Jewish teaching and practice, which have very specific rules and very specific regulations, and they warn against breaking or disregarding the rules. But I want you to pay attention to something. All those detailed rules do not come from the Torah. So it's worthwhile to look very carefully at the scriptures and to say, so where did, where in Torah did these rules come from? And what you'll find is they're not in Torah. The emphasis on all the rules and details follow a different understanding of faith, and sometimes they just ignore faith. Faith isn't an issue because there's a different theory of righteousness. Righteousness is obtained by fastidious obedience to the rules of the commandments. But what rules? Most of the rules, many of the rules are external to Torah. They're external to the life of faith. They were developed apart from the scriptures. But it's as if for these people, they're saying, if you do this Jewish tradition correctly, it will elevate you in God's eyes, but you have to do it correctly. If you don't do it correctly, it's not right. You don't wash your hands correctly, it's like you didn't wash your hands. You don't lay to fill in correctly, then you don't get the benefits of it. Now these days, some chassids like Chabad Lubavitch consider to fill in one of the most important commandments. I was, uh, I, I was at a Israel activity, a support Israel activity in Jacksonville a few years ago. And some of the Chabad rabbis, good guys, nice guys, uh, were going around trying to find Jewish-looking men in order to lay tefillin on them and to say prayers for tefillin. And so one of the rabbis came up to me, and somehow he verified I was a Jew. And then he wanted uh, to wrap tefillin on me and lead me in prayers. And so I said, yeah, sure. And, And so he did. And then he said, repeat after me, Shema. And so once he said Shema, I just kept going on my own. And that sort of bewildered him. Later, uh, someone who knew both of us told him that uh, I was a Messianic rabbi. And the Chabad rabbi was a little you know, like perplexed. Nice guy, I have to tell you. Good guy, but perplexed. Because for 
according to the teaching of Rabbi Schneerson of Chabad, who, who has passed away, if, if you can get a Jewish man to lay tefillin, you have brought him close to God. And it's the first step of him being Baal Teshuvah, someone who's returning to the Lord. Like a, it, it, it's the equivalent of a fundamentalist being thrilled because someone said the sinner's prayer. And they don't think about what's next. They just think, oh, wow, it, this is like faith. <coughs> this person is now right with God. That's how it's, it's often elevated. So we can ask this question, what did Yeshua have to say about tefillin? And interestingly, there's only one statement that he makes about tefillin in in the writings of the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 23, verse 5. And he says this, all their deeds are done for other men to see. And they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen their fringes, their tzitzit. That's it. That's his teaching. None of the details of some Jewish groups. And you'll notice Yeshua doesn't teach Talmudic or Kabbalist rules or practices. But he gives a very specific warning. He knows that by focusing on visible and external things, a person can miss the more important hidden issues of what's going on inside. So Yeshua targets the temptation that you would use big tefillin and you put them on where others can see you. But the word in Greek that's recorded for us is phylactery. It's still used by uh, many Jewish communities rather than tefillin. When I was growing up, uh, the Jews in, in our synagogue called them phylacteries. And then later, younger people started calling them tefillin. It depends on where you're from. Phylactery is a Greek word, but you know what phylactery means? Amulet. And so an amulet is a decorative container that has some kind of magical power because of what's inside. In a sense, Yeshua is saying that that when you use tefillin in, in this way to be seen by others, you're trying to make them big, you're trying to do all that stuff, Uh, they become to you like a magic amulet. And this is a real warning. Don't think there's power in these objects. Now, parents of toddlers, it's time to pick up your children. Parents who have children in the Shabbat school, I want to ask you to leave the sanctuary and and go get your kids. We've got just a couple uh, more minutes that we need to spend on this, and then we'll wrap up about five more minutes. But parents who have children... Your responsibility first is to get them. So this is a real warning. Don't think there's power in the objects. They're not magical. They themselves are not spiritual. In themselves, they don't elevate you spiritually. Just laying to fill in does not make you right with God. In fact, they can pull you away from faith and faithfulness. So then we have to ask ourselves, where in the Bible are the details about what to fill in should look like? and how to use them, and what should go inside of them, and what prayers you should say, and when you should use tefillin. And the answer is, nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in Torah are all those details. In order to find such details, you have to read Talmud, Kabbalah, 
and things that are based on those. All the detailed rules about tefillin as we know them today are not biblical. They aren't Torah commands. Now let's look at a key passage from Torah, and you'll notice the absence of detail. It's Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we'll read the next few verses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is what Yeshua said is the greatest commandment. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Verse 8, and this is like uh, a key for to fill and tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And some English translations say, and, and bind them as phylacteries on your foreheads. The, the Hebrew is totafod, which is not phylactery, it's something else. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. But do you see the absence of detail? To get the details that are commonly promoted, you have to go outside of the scriptures. You can't even go to the New Testament scriptures because the details aren't there, except the warning, don't, the ones of you who are making the big, you know, you really like the big ones. Uh, be careful. So here's one of the challenges. The Jewish groups that have lots of rules about tefillin got them from what they call oral Torah. And that's because the actual Torah, the real Torah, the written Torah does not contain these rules. And so they've elevated oral Torah, Talmud, Kabbalah to a place of holiness and spiritual authority in place of Torah, in place of the teachings of Yeshua. And that, by its nature, is dangerous. It's not that tefillin are dangerous. That practice of elevating other sources is dangerous. Now, if you study the text and think that the sources are authoritative, you will actually be moving away from biblical faith. It's a very dangerous thing to do. So I want to warn you, be careful. And the same thing could be said about mezuzahs, which are also covered in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 6, right after uh, what we read, which is often interpreted to be uh, fulfilled with tefillin. Now, if you get caught up in some of the rules and traditions that define what is kosher for a mezuzah, you're actually moving away from Torah because Torah doesn't have all those details. You have to go outside of Torah. Now, I, I love mezuzahs. We, we have a good collection, and those that are on our doorways are important to me, but I don't adhere to all the rules and regulations. I don't elevate the rules and regulations. For me, a mezuzah marks my house as a Jewish house. And it helps me identify as part of the Jewish community. It's, it's a way of saying, here I am, I'm a Jew living among you. Like it or not. And we've lived in some places where it was, or not. But that's it. It's not that I think, oh, there's magic power now. It's not an amulet of protection. When the blood was applied to the doorposts in Egypt, it wasn't magic. It was obedient faith. You couldn't another day put blood on your doorposts and have that work for you. So don't think there's magical power in these things. Don't think there's some kind of special spiritual power in Jewish objects. 
Don't think there's special spiritual power in Christian objects, for that matter. <clears throat> and I know for some of you, it's much easier to agree when I'm talking about Christian objects. Yeah, you know, that I went to a church, you know, one of the high churches, and they're swinging, you know, the incense sensor, and, you know, oh my gosh, and they're, they're adoring the Madonna, and the statues, and the icons, and all these other objects, and they've got you know, crosses on big poles. and It's so much easier for many of you to say, oh, they are so caught up in superstitions and things that are extra biblical, etc. But when I turn to Jewish stuff, it's like, that anti-Semite Levine. (laughs) I'm not anti-Semitic. I love... I love good Jewish things. It's just we need to make a distinction and we need to have boundaries and understand what what is what. Don't think these things will make you more spiritual or bring you closer to God. I'm not saying they're a hindrance, but they can be. They can be. I'll tell one story. I grew up in a synagogue where we wore talits like this. You could... Well, not exactly like this. Plain black, no gold, or plain blue stripes. That was it. And then, I don't know, when I was a teenager, one of the rabbis who who had spent some time in Israel, he was a young guy in his early 30s, he came in with a talik adult, you know, and it looked really good. He wore it, and none of the old guys could wear that. So I grew up with this being the kind of talit, that, that, that I like. And I honestly, there was a period where I was admiring those of you who can wear a talika doll and, you know, you get it just so. But there's something about my shoulders and the way I move and all sorts of stuff where the talit ends up coming off and sliding, and I have to, like, do that. And I remember watching Jeremiah Greenberg. He was cantor in our synagogue up in Rochester. He's the one who did the um, Sidor that we use, the Messianic Sidor. And Jeremiah, bless his soul, had a talit gadol, and he was always doing what we call the chicken dance, you know, like <laughs> trying to get the talit back on his shoulders. And I thought maybe there's something, you know, about some of us. We're just not geared for this. And then I watched a video of John, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi of England, and he's like one of the most esteemed Jewish thinkers, scholars, and leaders in the world today. And there was a video of him leading a service uh, in England and one of the most operatic and highly regarded cantors was the chazan for the day and he had a talik doll and bless his heart, he was doing the chicken dance. He was... The kind of talit you wear doesn't elevate you. And if you think it does, then you are already declining. So remember that God is looking at your faith and your faithfulness. He's not looking at how well you follow the teachings of Talmud and Kabbalah. Don't make that mistake about God. Finding spiritual elevation and security in objects can give you a false sense of security. It can actually give you confidence in the wrong things, and that's dangerous 
because it will lead also to something else, and that is to be tempted to judge other people who don't follow your rules, your way. Somebody could be saying, oh, that Rabbi David at Beth Israel, he's not a real Jew. He's not teaching the people to lay tefillin. Or someone could say, you know, I'm actually more spiritual than the rabbis at Beth Israel. Because I'm getting together with other people, and we're laying to fill in. We're teaching other people how to do it. And these rabbis, you know, I don't even know if they're Jewish. Let me, let me just be straight. I hate to be so blunt, but I will. Those kinds of judgments are actually signs that a person's already slipped away from biblical faith. From Torah faith, from New Testament faith. And I just say, danger, danger, my friends. In in this day of the internet and and social media, you can find people who will teach you anything. And you can have friends who will support you in everything you want to do. Remember my story last week about the new believers who... They're smoking pot and taking naked saunas together, men and women, and then they're going out and leading people to the Lord. You know, let's toke up and share Jesus. You can find friends who will support you in anything you want to do. So be careful about your friends and don't be naive. If you didn't hear that story, listen to last Saturday's podcast. It's a great story. But don't be naive. It's, it's dangerous to be naive these days. Be careful about learning from sources who elevate Rabbi Nachman or Rabbi Schneerson to a position of great honor. Neither of these rabbis taught their disciples to follow Yeshua. <coughs> I want to close with two examples of customs and traditions. One that Yeshua exemplified, one that Paul did It'll take just a, just a minute. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Yeshua went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, Yom Shabbat, Saturday morning, like today, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Say that last phrase with me. As was his custom. Yeshua grew up in Nazareth and it was his custom to participate in synagogue services on Saturday morning. So moms and dads, let me say this to you. You give a special gift to your children when you bring them here to synagogue every week. They will develop good habits, and these habits will help them throughout their life as adults and as future parents. And they will appreciate you because they will know that you're following the example of Yeshua. Then let's look at the last, the last detail, Acts chapter 17, verse 2. As was his custom, say that with me. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Very interesting. It was Paul's custom also to participate in synagogue services on Yom Shabbat. And on three Yom Shabbats. So Paul had a custom, a habit, a tradition. It was part of his lifestyle. Where would you find him on Saturday morning? At synagogue. Where would you find Yeshua on, at, on Saturday morning? At synagogue. That's right. Some of you could learn something by following this. Uh, you come sometimes. Your custom is every so often. Or once a month. Or twice a month. 
Or your custom is to be inconsistent. You are consistently inconsistent about attending services. And of course there are times when people can't come or they can't come consistently because of health or they, they may be um, in the military, they may need to be out of town, they may have occasional need to do something that conflicts with your attendance, that's completely understandable. But be careful about your routines and your habits. Keep your eyes fixed on Yeshua and let him perfect your faith and your faithfulness. Let him be the model for you. And if you do, you know what? Your lifestyle will change. It will be affected for good. And it will be according to what you read simply in the scriptures, not according to a bunch of rules and regulations that are outside of the scriptures. And as you follow him, you know what? Your faith and your faithfulness will grow stronger and stronger and will bear a lot of fruit. Well, I know by talking about some of these things, I stir people up. If if you didn't get stirred up, that's fine. If you did get stirred up, that's fine too. Because this is meant to provoke you to think about what do the scriptures say and what, does, what are the details. And then to examine the scriptures to see if you're bringing anything in that doesn't deserve to come in to your understanding of scriptures. And helps you understand the kinds of customs and traditions you should be living with. One of the traditional roles of rabbis in synagogues is to watch over the customs and practices of the congregation and to give authoritative instruction about those customs. And so this is part of the rabbinic tradition and role. I hope you enjoy it. And if it stirs you up or you disagree, then let it, let it contribute to dialogue. Don't just run off in independence or offense, even if it's offensive, some of the things I said. Uh, it means you've heard. And then we can talk about it. So I'm still smiling. I hope you are too. <laughs> Let's close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please stand up? And if you're standing by yourself, would you take a few steps in the direction of others so that you can be together and not be standing alone? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat shalom, y'all.